Hello, my friends. This is Andy Falco Jimenez coming to you from Orange County, California. You know, it's uh, suddenly become odd to go live by myself. I normally <laughs> go live on a on a show that we do not every day, but nearly every day uh, with my wife called the Living Fearless Devotional. If you don't know about it, go ahead and, and do a search on the Internet. You can find it on YouTube, Living Fearless Devotional, uh, uh, Rumble, and a number of other uh, locations. Um, you can find it there. So um, it just feels funny. Um, and so... Uh, we're going to be talking about this uh, Officer Kim Potter um, case where she accidentally shot a, um, a suspect in a, a, a car stop where her um, trainee uh, made contact and in the midst of apparently arresting him for some reason, <laughs> you know, uh, I got to admit, I did not watch every bit of the trial. So there's going to be some details I'm not fully aware of, but that doesn't change my opinion on what it is we're going to be talking about today um, and um, how it, I, I, it's not her fault uh, that this happened. It's not obviously the suspect's fault. It's um, not really even the uh, the trainee's fault as to what happened. Um, it, is, um, it is much bigger than that. And so I, I'm going to talk about these things that I did not hear uh, talked about in the trial. In, in much of the case and in many of the reviews that I saw. And so we're going to get to that. So uh, why do this three or four days after uh, the trial is over? It's because Christmas hit. So if you're watching this later sometime and don't know, uh, it was the day before uh, Christmas Eve that the uh, ruling was, or not the ruling, but the decision was made by the jury uh, to convict her of two different um, uh, uh, charges of manslaughter. And, and, and that essentially says that there was some negligence on her part, that she was negligent, that she um, made bad decisions, that it was her inability uh, to make the right decisions, to uh, resort to her training um, that cost this man her life. Now, on some level, that may be true. But again, I'm going to make a case that if they would have had a different expert on the case, that they could have clearly proved that um, it's it's much bigger than that, and it, it's um, it's one of these things that you have to look at slightly differently uh, than the way that the jury looked at it. And be, and I think the reason they missed it is because nobody brought up these points and these issues that are extremely important for a jury to understand when a law enforcement officer is put into a sudden. Uh, into a position that suddenly puts them in a high stressful situation that they may or may not have ever been in before. And that changes everything. All right. So um, if you don't know uh, that I have a podcast out of this particular channel, which is called the Andy Falco podcast.com go there and you will find the podcast that you can uh, subscribe to. All right. So I want to lay a little bit of foundation and that is, number one, the Brooklyn Center Police Department is a very small police department in, in, in regard to uh, police departments across the United States, North America. Um, it is a, a small one. Uh, I'm going to read from their website. It says, our department is made up of 49, 49 licensed full-time police officers and 22 full and part-time non-sworn staff, which means uh, clerks, um, uh, ID techs possibly that are non-sworn to uh, property um, uh, attendants who take care of any kind of evidence that comes in and files it properly uh, and so on and so forth. There's a, secretaries and a number of other people that have roles in a law enforcement office 
uh, a police department that are not sworn police officers that carry a gun and weapons and, and go out on calls. Even report writers that go out on calls are not sworn police officers. They often wear a uniform, like a cadet uniform, but they are not sworn officers that go on these calls or make car stops. They're not lawfully able to make car stops. And so 49 uh, police officers that are full-time is a fairly small police department. You have smaller that may have, you know, five, uh, which would be like a chief of police, a captain, lieutenant, um, uh, maybe three or four sergeants and a couple patrolmen. You may have somebody, something that small. You may maybe not have a lieutenant. You may have chief of police, a captain, and then maybe two captains and, you know, police officers. It just depends on the layout of the police department. In, uh, in Orange County, we, I don't know, we may have a couple police departments that are down to those numbers, maybe La Palma Police Department, uh, Cypress Police Department, uh, Los Alamitos, maybe that small. But for the most part, you get into the hundreds of police officers. Brea Police Department maybe another one of those small ones. And so um, I'm telling you this because I, as an Anaheim police officer, which I was a Anaheim police officer for 21 years, we had somewhere in the neighborhood when I first started, 380 or something like that when I first started in the late 80s uh, and then went up to something like 500, if I'm not mistaken, uh, about the time I retired. I've continued to train law enforcement officers, not only when I was a police officer, but after I retired for several years all over the country and all over the world, for that matter. Small departments, the large the police departments. I've worked side by side with big departments and small de police departments. This is important for you to know that I, what I'm about to tell you, it comes from experience and from knowledge that I have with working with and training officers that come from small departments and big police departments. Being a small department doesn't mean you don't have action, but quite often that can be the case uh, because it would be unlikely that you would have um, very small police departments that would be in areas that have um, you know very large crime areas. Unlike, I mean, unless it was like uh, in LA where you have like Bell Police Department, which I'm not sure if they still exist. They might, but I'm not sure, which is a fairly small police department, but it's an area that has a high drug area and uh, have um, a lot, uh, probably a lot of carjackings, robberies, um, you know, uh, uh, aggravated assaults and that kind of thing that happened in a smaller department. But typically as you move, sorry, as you move east across the country into, um, you know, locations like Minnesota, that kind of stuff, I can pretty much bet that in this small department, 49 licensed police officers in a department that, um, let's see what the makeup is here. It, it, it said earlier, but there was something like 39,000, I think it was 39,000 population, uh, 29,000 are employed. So that means you have 10,000 unemployed. You know, uh, when I look at the pictures, it's a, a mixture. Uh, it's a, a lot of Caucasians. You see uh, some Hispanics and you see a few uh, black um, uh, blacks, at least in the demogra demographics. And so it's a fairly balanced uh, community. But I don't see, based on the pictures I'm looking at, that it looks like that it's a high intensity city and department where the police officers, the 49 police officers are daily going out there dealing with carjackings, robberies in progress, um, uh, aggravated assaults that they're rolling to, um, shooting, you know, drive-by shootings. Just based on what I see on this police department's website and the city's website, it doesn't look like a city where the officers are going out on a daily basis 
and dealing with these kinds of crimes. What I would imagine in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, is that they're probably quite often dealing with maybe some traffic violations, traffic accidents, maybe a few burglaries here and there, a couple petty thefts, and domestic violence cases, uh, parking violations, um, cat in the tree calls, um, suspicious circumstances, that kind of thing. But I'm guessing not a lot of homicides, not a lot of shootings, not a lot of drive-by shootings, that kind of stuff. Again, I'm, I'm, I've never been to Brooklyn Center as far as I know. I may have driven through it because I've had a couple of cases in Minnesota. But I'm telling you, by, based on what I can see on the website uh, and anybody that knows, uh, you know, please let me know for sure that, you know, there's some other stuff going on. I was looking for the demographics and of course I can't find it. Um, city data. Um, center history, community profile. Um, and there's it, just not a lot of information. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Um, uh, uh, city strategic goals. Uh, again, it, it, it's just, it looks like a, a pretty small town type of look and that kind of stuff. This is really important because I'm going to get to the reason why it's important in just a second. So understand that I'm laying out a foundation for the police department. I could, I could tell you for me, what would be in relationship to uh, comparing, you got Los Angeles police department, which was fair, is fairly close. You got LA County Sheriff's department, Orange County Sheriff's department. You got Santa Ana PD, Anaheim PD in this area are the cities that are handling carjacking, shootings, drive-by shootings, gang calls, a lot of narcotics, especially back in the 80s, 90s, uh, early 2000s, there was a, a lot of high crime happening in many areas of Anaheim. Much of it has been cleaned up since then, but on a daily basis, we are going to some type of robbery or a carjacking or a shooting or a stabbing or in-progress aggravated assault, especially on the weekends on a regular basis. It was something that we as officers knew how to respond to often. We were often fighting with suspect with a lot of domestic violence, that kind of stuff. In, in, uh, on the opposite side of things, we would sometimes assist departments like Brea Police Department, which, which was a neighboring and is a neighboring city of Anaheim. Or um, let's see, what other one would there be? Um, not, not orange, but let's just go with Brea. So Brea is a pretty bedroom, uh, pretty much a type of bedroom community where not a lot of those things would happen. So when a drive-by shooting would happen or a robbery would happen, Anaheim Police Department, Orange County Sheriff's Police Department would often go and assist or help out because they didn't have a lot of experience in dealing with these types of crime. And so I would often, with my canine, go and assist on crimes that were in progress or a high-level uh, you know, um, type of crime where there were bodies on the ground, you know, suspects that were uh, actively fleeing and we were actively searching for because the city, the officers had, did not have a lot of experience in doing this. And so on occasion, we would come over and find them. They would have, they had three canine handlers when I was an officer, we had four and quite often their, their teams would call us and we would go and we would often find suspects their dogs would miss because again, their canine teams did not have a lot of experience searching for active fleeing um, suspects and they would often miss or not know how to search for somebody within a perimeter and locate them. I would come in and I probably found four or five suspects that either their canines were not able to, or they just weren't able to um, conduct a search that was uh, where they were able to kind of figure out how things were to work out. And that comes from experience. This is something that we're going to deal with as a country because of the defunding and the um, 
the types of things that have been going on with law enforcement where police officers with experience have been retiring, where you're losing officers that have the experience that know how to deal with these kinds of situations on a regular basis. And, uh, and without that experience, without officers that know how to deal with high crime situations, active, um, you know, shooting in progress, robbery in progress, that kind of stuff, uh, unless you have experience, they, they become a little bit more difficult and officers don't respond mentally in a way that either solves a problem or keeps people safe. And then sometimes you have mistakes that are made. All right. So just understand I'm, I'm laying out a foundation for this department doesn't appear to be one where the officers have a lot of experience, even if with 26 years on. And that's the case with uh, Kim Potter is it appears that she has somewhere in the neighborhood of 23 or 26 years on and was actually even a, a field training officer. All right. So um, I hope I've laid that foundation pretty firmly that she's an officer, just probably dealt with a lot of report calls like burglaries, robberies after they've occurred and gone there after their cold crime scenes, um, you know, auto thefts, parking, traffic violations, traffic accident violations, domestic violence, that kind of stuff. But not a lot of these other things where you have to make a decision whether you're going to shoot and kill somebody um, and probably not had that experience, even though she's been on for 26 years. It is not uncommon in law enforcement in the United States, and you would, you would not think this is true, where there's officers that have never pulled their gun out of their holster. There's officers that have never shot any, at anybody. There's officers that have never been in pursuit of a, a suspect vehicle driving at speeds of 75, 100 miles an hour trying to, to catch somebody that have ever been on the, the search for somebody, had to set up a perimeter and try to find somebody that is armed and dangerous. There's many police officers that have never done that. And this, again, is what I'm getting the feeling about this Brooklyn Center Police Department. Again, this is not something that I heard that was brought up in the case, not in any of the, uh, the, the um, news reports that I read, any of the testimony that I heard as I was actively watching most of it. Again, I watched probably 50 to 60 percent of the testimony, mostly the officer's testimony. But I didn't hear anything about the demographics of the department, their experience in dealing with 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 the life and death situation of using a gun or a taser um, or any of the other tools that are found on somebody's belt uh, as a police officer. And so that experience, as far as I know, uh, was not brought up as an issue that may be important when we get into some of these other details that I'm going to bring up very shortly. All right. So with all that in mind, all right, we have a car stop for uh, what it appears to be an expired registration. That's all I know. If there's anything that is not correct, please comment and please let me know whether you're watching live or uh, re um, on the replay, that if, if there's anything else that, uh, that is brought up in this car stop that um, I need to know that was discovered at the time of the call. And I don't care what happened afterwards. There may have been, um, uh, the, the, the driver may have been a, you know, had a warrant out for his arrest for murder. But we, if you didn't know it before he was shot and killed, it's not relevant. Did we know it at the time that this car stop was made or just prior to the wrestling match that occurred or just prior to the shot ring out that killed him? Then it would be important. If it was found out afterwards, not important. This kind of stuff gets brought up all the time that, well, this guy was wanted for murder. Well, when did you know he's wanted for murder? Well, after we killed him. <laughs> no, you can't kill somebody because of something you found out later. All right. So if there's anything else, what I know at the time of the car stop, it was for a expired registration. Okay. So you got the Kim Potter and you got her uh, officer or their training officer who was probably driving at the time, 
made the car stop, pulled the car over, the car pulled over um, with the driver uh, who would eventually be shot and killed. But the driver uh, pulled over as normal. And then for whatever reason, I made a lot of car stops on expired registration. I can't tell you unless I was looking for something else. Maybe I had information that the driver in the vehicle might be wanted in another crime. Again, that's good information to know. Uh, you know, what led to getting him out of the vehicle um, is, um, you know, maybe the vehicle matches, but maybe the suspect didn't match. So you need to get him out to ask him, you know, what's the deal with the vehicle? Were you driving this the entire day? Why was, after the car was stopped, why was the suspect asked to come out and, um, and, and beginning the process of handcuffing? None of this, at least in what I've read, makes any sense at this point. But I'm going to start the video at the point where we see the uh, the uh, the trainee police officer is getting the driver out of the vehicle and begins to what appears to be handcuffing him for one reason. I don't know. I, I, I've not been able to figure that out. Now, again, if you know, make sure and type it into the comments. Oh, one thing I almost forgot. We're going to be seeing some graphic content. Um, it's not that graphic. You can't really see any blood or anything. Uh, but I just want you to know that somebody's going to be shot when we're watching this video. And there's a good chance that I may use some foul language because it's going to be important later on when I, when I talk about some certain things. So um, just understand that you may hear the F word or the S word or some other word that may come out of my mouth. It just depends uh, what it is we're talking about at the time. So be aware. So if you have kids in the car, um, you may want to turn down the volume because it's going to be uh, important to talk about some of these things that are going to be coming up. And I think there's some cussing on the video, if I'm not mistaken. All right. So I'm going to bring up the car stop here. And um, it's going to be important for you uh, to watch. I'm going to play it in full speed to begin with. And then we're going to come back and slow it down just a little bit because we have that ability. Remember, at the time, the officers have no way of slowing anything down. It's all happening at real time, real speed. And they have to make some really quick decisions really fast. All right. So here we go. Around 2 p.m. local time Sunday, police pulled over Wright. The police chief says they stopped Dante Wright because he had an expired registration on his license plate. The release footage begins minutes into the stop and shows police walking up to the car. And then Wright is seen stepping out of his vehicle. Police then try to take Wright into custody after discovering he has an outstanding warrant. The video shows Wright begins to resist as cuffs are placed on him and he gets back into the vehicle. As I watch the video. All right. So that's how, that's how fast it happens. It was the car stop, got the man out, the boy, man, 21 years old. Uh, something like that. I'm not sure how old he is. I think maybe 19. He gets him out and they're fiddling around. The guy uh, twists out, the suspect twists out and gets back into the car. And he's going to, it really appears strongly that he's going to drive away. Um, you, you see the officer, um, Kim Potter, she had a piece of paper in her right hand. I don't know if it was his registrations. I don't know what it is. If she's maybe taking notes on something, but she has that in her hand. She's now going to make the conscious decision of dropping that out of her hand to grab what she thinks is her taser, but by mistake grabs the, her duty weapon, her, her pistol, this gun like this in her hand, uh, and, and points it at him. You hear her say, I'm gonna tase him, 
and then she says, taser, taser, taser. The backup officer knows what that means. That means let go of him because if she were to shock him while the uh, officer is holding on to him, he's going to get also shot from the taser. So he's got to let go and back off. And when she sees he does that, then he, she fires what she thinks is the taser, but in fact is the weapon and shoots him. He's, is, he's able to drive away, but he uh, dies uh, as he's probably driving the vehicle, crashes his car, and then either dies at the scene or dies on the way to the hospital. But you can see how quickly all of this happened. Um, I want to play it one more time, and I just want you to watch all the dynamics. I want you to see the paper because it's important to see the paper. I want you to see the yellow taser on the FT, on the trainee's belt. See where it see do you see it? Does it flash in front of your eyes? Do you focus on it? Do you see it? Um, and then I want you to to see how quickly everything transpired from the time that he gets out of the car, how quickly she goes up, and then the, the fight happens, how quickly he starts to get in the vehicle, suddenly see the weapon, and then she fires. I want you to see how quickly all of that happens. Let me go ahead and just pull this back a little bit, and I just want you to watch it one more time. Here we go. 2 p.m. local time Sunday. Police pulled over Wright. The police chief says they stopped Dante Wright because he had an expired registration on his license plate. The release footage begins minutes into the stop and shows police walking up to the car and then Wright is seen stepping out of his vehicle. Police then try to take Wright into custody after discovering he has an outstanding warrant. The video shows Wright begins to resist as cuffs are placed on him and he gets back into the vehicle. As I watch the video. All right, from about the time that she went hands-on, it was about 16 seconds. So in 16 seconds, a lot happens, a lot transpires. She goes up to help with the handcuffing. She sees that her, her partner is having a little bit of difficulty for whatever reason. She, see, she see, sees that he loses control and she actually he pulls out of both her hands and his hands. And then you see him get in the vehicle. She has a piece of paper in her hand. She has to drop that. She then has to decide that she's going to pull a weapon. She believes it's going to be the taser. Uh, and then she uh, aims the taser, lets her officer partner know that she's going to use the taser, which is back to training, the training of, of what to do when she's using a taser yells taser, 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 fires a weapon, and shoots him with an actual gun. All right. Why did I show you that twice? Because I want you to see everything that's going on in this video. There's, there's the first thing that lets me know that these both officers, the trainee, obviously, because he's new, and uh, Kim Potter have very little experience in dealing with a suspect that is about to fight and and jump in their car and drive away. Uh, because if we, if we were to go back, and let me just see if I can set this up so you can see it. If we get back to a, a place here where you can see the size advantage that the, I'm not sure if you can see it I, on my screen, there's some things in the way, but you can, you can see, let me see if I can get rid of this. And then right. Yeah, it's hard to see, but you can see that he clearly has the size advantage. The, the backup officer or the primary officer or the trainee has the size advantage over the suspect. Now, the problem here, again, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say that, that these officers 
surely could have did a, done a better job. Uh, if I, as the training officer, would have seen how the trainee was going into the handcuffing process of the suspect, number one, I would have said, what the hell are you doing? If, if, if it's only for a um, expired registration, what are we doing? What, what's happening here? I would, have, I would have stopped the situation quickly. Or I would have, it depends on the phase, I would have said to myself, all right, he's made this decision and maybe it has a communicating. Usually what you do as a trainee and a trainer is you, you develop the understanding that, hey, if you're going to make a decision to handcuff somebody, you got to let me know why. You got to tell me what's happening. You have to say out loud what's going to be going on. And you need to move the suspect away from the opening of the vehicle. You want to bring them more closer to the trunk. You don't want to try to handcuff somebody at the opening of the vehicle because they can grab the inside of the vehicle and use that to, to be able to get inside the vehicle. Every, again, every police officer knows where to move somebody so that when you're handcuffing them, they don't have an advantage of any sort. You want to take any advantage that's, that's in their reach, in their grasp, away from them. Even if you think that you're bigger than them, even if you think that you're stronger than them, why take a chance? The, the, we would have clearly, as a trainer of this trainee, would have said, move them back farther, move them away from the opening, close the driver's door, bring them out to the back. What are you doing this for at this position? First mistake. Again, we would expect a trainee to make this mistake, and that's not that big of a deal. But why did she go in there and half-assed the positioning of her hand where the guy was able to pull out? When you make a decision to handcuff somebody, you, you want them to know that they are not to fight with you. You want them to know that fighting is not an option. You don't go in mamby-pamby with soft hands uh, and ask permission, hey, may, may I handcuff you? No, there, there's something bigger going on here. And this is where the problem starts. This is why I think, although they may be culpable, both the backup or the, um, the trainee and the primary officer or the trainer, Kim Potter, have some fault. It, it's the fault that they did not handle the situation the way that it should been. Now, this is right off the bat. Whose fault is that? This is where I'm going to come in and begin to probably be a little controversial because is it their fault? Or is it the police department's fault? Is it their fault or the police academy's fault? Is it their fault or is it their supervisor's fault? I, I'm here to tell you that I look at hundreds of cases on an annual basis um, in these types of investigations. I still do it to this day. I investigate officers who are making decisions about the arrest of somebody that they have either stopped or been called to um, in regard to a search warrant or some type of in-progress incident where they've been, they, that they've been called to or they've initiated the stop or the contact of some sort. And I investigate these uh, cases all over North America, cases in California, United States, all the way across to New York, up into Canada. And we, we, I look at these cases and I have to watch all of these videos over and over again. And I begin in spots like this, not where the shooting took place, but what happened at the beginning? What do I see as a problem? The problem is that these officers were not prepared. They were not trained properly. They were not prepared to handle the situation. 
why is he flat-footed? Why is he so delicately trying to put this guy in handcuffs? You gave him the idea that he might get away. He should have never had the idea that he could get away. He should have never had the idea that he could escape from this situation. The, 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 the trainee is clearly much larger and potentially much stronger than the person that they um, were about to try to handcuff. And then when she comes in, what's she doing? As the, as the trainer, she should have came in with a full arm and a full um, commitment to take this man into custody. And that was neither done. All right, so th this right off the bat, this tells me that this team, these two officers were not adequately prepared to take on this situation that they put themselves into. All right, and I want to make this sure that this is clear. They put themselves in this situation. The trainee put themselves in this situation because for whatever reason, he decided that to start handcuffing this, this you know, young adult on a traffic stop that was merely it would appears to be a, a, a registration violation that he was not in, in uh, you know, did not have the right tags on his license plate. All right. So let's go back and I'm going to show, and we're going to show this a few times and I'm sorry, but I, I tried to warn you that we're going to be um, looking at this, this, this um, situation a couple of times, but here we go. So Dante I just want you to see what we're looking at and what I evaluate as I'm looking at these kinds of things. Plate. I'm going to actually hit the release me. footage begins minutes. You've heard the narrative enough, but you can see, look how, look how, how he's just kind of like fiddling with the handcuffs. I'm going to show you that again. Look how he's fiddling with the handcuffs. He gets him out and he's like, look at him, which end goes around the guy's wrist. And then he doesn't quite have it. He doesn't have the guy pulled off balance. And you see her hand. That hand position is not a hand position of advantage. Taking your hand like this and trying, you try to hold on to a 10-year-old. You try to hold on to a five-year-old, but if this is their arm on the microphone, uh, actually, I'm use this microphone so you don't have to hear. But if I'm going to grab this microphone and somebody to pull it, it's going to come right out of my hand. I have no position of advantage. I have no strength. The man is going to pull away. The woman is going to pull away. The little toddler is going to pull away because that is not a position. What is she doing? This hand needs to come through or needs to come through and grab from another position, get your arm in there and get your whole body, sorry, and get your whole body into this handcuffing uh, process. Not this position. This position is a position of weakness. And that's the first sign that the kid is going, or the man, whatever you want to call him, he's a young adult, is going to say, wait, these people don't know what they're doing. I can feel the hesitation in the man that's behind me. I can feel the hesitation in the woman behind me. And again, we have a responsibility. I'm sorry, I'm going to start getting heated here and get, get because I get the same when I'm teaching police officers. I've trained police officers for 30 years all over the United States, all over the country. And there's nothing worse for me to see is a mamby-pamby, pussy way of going in and trying to handcuff somebody. If you're, you, I could be a nice guy, right? I, I was pretty well known uh, in the police department as a, as a pretty even-headed guy, a level-headed guy, and a nice guy. Uh, but when it came to making that transition from interview, from first contacts on a car stop to making the decision to arrest somebody, there, there had to be a transition to, from nice guy to say, listen, you are not going to fight with me. If we're going to fight... It's going to end poorly. And you communicate with them both verbally 
and with your body positioning and your hand positioning. It all, you can do it in a way that not anybody around you even knows that it's happening. I've whispered plenty of times in, in anybody's ear that, okay, this decision to handcuff you is because I, I fear for my life. I think that you're going to fight. So I need to put you for your safety and for my safety, you need to be in handcuffs. For this to happen, it's got to be pretty serious. And I'm going to tell you that if you fucking fight me, this is going to end poorly and you are not in, in, in one of us is going to die. And this is how it's going to end. So you can either be handcuffed or you can decide that you're going to fight. And that's all done very quickly and in a manner and in a location, not next to the open door of the, of the vehicle. And you move them to the side. You move them away from any place where they can flee and get to the stupid car and drive it away and run over other officers. <sighs> all right. So is this their fault? I'm going to go back. And this is one of the things that I talk about all the time. It is not the suspect's fault and it is not the officer's fault if the officers are not trained properly to a certain extent. I'm going to get to the officer's culpability in this in a minute. But it really frustrates me that departments and police academies have really lost their way in preparing men and women to work on the streets so that it protects the suspect or um, persons of interest and the police officer, you got to protect both. We have, a, we have a duty to protect the suspect. We have a duty to protect them, a duty. And so it is the duty of the police academy, of the canine academy, of the, um, of the, the training that comes in after the um, academies and the supervisors, uh, which would be the sergeant, lieutenant, captains, and the chief of police or deputy chief, if there's one in, the, in there, or the sheriff or the deputy sheriff. It's the duty of the leadership to make sure that their officers are prepared to deal with a, situa like, with a situation like this. Now, why they, again, were handcuffing somebody in a car stop for vehicle registration is beyond me. I, I, don't, I don't have the answers. If you have the answers, please let me know. I do not have the answers to that. That may be their first mistake. That's where they're, they have, that's, that should have been the question. I mean, I know there was question in, in the news. I know it was question in articles that I read, but um, really what, what is this? Is this normal? This is this normal for this, the police department? Is this normal? Uh, did the, the, the rookie take it upon himself? Again, that's really important to know. He, he was not even hardly, as far as I know, questioned about much of this. And again, I didn't listen to the testimony when they questioned him, but uh, I'm not sure that this was like the, like the biggest, this was the biggest deal. What, how did we get to this situation? It, we never should have got here. All right. So um, the next part, I'm going to kind of move forward here just a little bit on the video before I show it to you. And it gets to the point where, you got this piece of paper in the hand. Oh, this is so hard to stop. And the, this is from a body cam. And this is the problem I, I get into all the time. Um, and I'm going to show you here that in you can see at the very top there, she has a piece of paper in her hand. All right. So she has a piece of paper in her hand, which should have been dropped. Right. Why is she if she was going? This is another this is another area that tells me that she was not prepared to go hands on. Because why do you have a piece of paper in your hand gripped like that? If you were not really thinking about handcuffing this guy and wrestling to the ground and taking him to the ground um, and not allowing him to get inside that, you were not committed as the trainer. You are the trainer. Why is this piece of paper in your hand? Okay, I'm going to get to now this really important part because this is where this 
this next phase is important to understand why the department is culpable, why the academy is culpable, why the training for whoever conducted the training of the taser, whoever conducted the training um, for arrest and control techniques, whoever conducted the training of what happens in a sustained confrontation, who's the trainer, who talked about these things. These are super important because when we get to this kind of situation, I'm going to tell you right now, oops, wrong area here, is that adrenaline and cortisol can be a cop's worst enemy. And I've been teaching this for maybe 25 to 30 years that early on in my career that I understood that adrenaline and cortisol are a cop's worst enemy. Now, away from the police department, this is where the jury, I don't think, got proper understanding of what it's like to be a police officer or what's important to know about police officers is that um, decision-making only comes through a conscious mind. Decision-making on to use any one of the weapons. So I got my, my gun belt here. I've had to pull out of the mothballs, but you got a number of things. See, you got a number of tools. I got a handcuff case. I got an OC holder. I got a flashlight holder, pack set holder. I got magazine holder. Uh, in many cases I had, uh, this is my nunchucks that I used to carry. And so you have nunchucks uh, that you're carrying. Some guys used other types of uh, expandable batons. Um, when I first started, we had PR 24s and straight sticks. Uh, but you have all these things that are on your belt. You often have things in your pockets you can use. Uh, sometimes I would carry a knife like this one in my, in my belt or somewhere in, in my pocket. And so I had a knife. Um, we had a number of, of tools available to us that are on our belt that we can make a decision as to which ones we're going to use in a timely manner. All right. So at this moment that the fight begins, and again, I, there's something to be said that she may not understand exactly what was going on with this trainee. And she's probably... And you're thinking, you're processing your mind. Okay, this was a registration violation. Why is he pulling him out and why is he handcuffing him? And why is this guy fighting? And understanding that your brain is trying to process everything that's going on. Within 14 seconds, I think whatever it was that I counted, 14, 16 seconds of the time that she touched him to the time that she shot him, she had 14 seconds to process, to stop thinking about what was going on with the car stuff maybe her surprise of the fight that was just taking place. And now as a training officer, you're going, why, why, why couldn't this seemingly much bigger man not control the guy? This is all going through your head, right? Was the jury made aware of as a police officer, there is a lot more to just what you see on the video. There is a lot going on in this head where this, this adrenaline and cortisol come in is that, it nearly wipes almost all that away. And again, I've been training this forever and saying that off, um, uh, uh, police academies, canine academies, training officers, um, people that are teaching um, arrest and control techniques have to teach officers to control their selves, to, to train through the, the, the fear the, the adrenaline pump, the cortisol pump that comes into your, into your body instantaneously when you think that your life is in danger. That as a police officer, we don't have the luxury of going through this adrenaline and cortisol dump. When you go through these dumps, the process of thinking clearly is sometimes completely lost. And if you are not put in these positions through training, 
through repetitive training over and over again, where you are put into very stressful situations of training, you're going to have a much much more difficult time of making conscious decisions on which weapon you're going to go to on this gun belt. What is it that this situation calls for? What does this situation call for? A registration violation. Do we need, this is so important. You have a procedure manual that says you can use force when your life is in danger or the the life of somebody else. You can use certain types of force. Sometimes if if you think that it's going to be, um, you know, only necessary to use the, the, the nunchucks, for instance, right? Are we going to use them as, an, uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> as, a, as a, a, around the wrist? Are we going to use them as a striking weapon on their chest? Are we going to strike them at, with the nunchucks in, the, in, a, in a, the, what would be the traditional nunchuck use, right? You have to think, what is this, what is this situation called for? Are we going to use a knife? Are we going to use a gun? Are we going to use a taser? You have to, again, within 14 seconds, when she touched him, he began to fight. The adrenaline and the cortisol, if you go into fear, will kick in. And now you've lost the ability to make these decisions consciously. She's got to drop that piece of paper to open up the hand, to drop the weapon, or to drop the paper, to draw her weapon is a, is a, is, is, a thought process in some instances. There's a little bit of uh, instinctual if you've gone through the training, but you have to know that you have the paper in your hand because it's hard to, if you have something in your hand, to grab something. All right, I'm going to close the slide on this. And so if you're going for this weapon, you've now had to, in a short period of time, flash of a second, decide, drop the paper, grab the weapon, right? Am I grabbing the taser or am I grabbing my weapon? The taser is in this direction coming out of the belt. The weapon is in this position coming out of the belt. My hand comes down and draws this weapon or my hand comes across and draws this weapon. A lot of discussion was made about, hey, one is lighter than the other and they are facing two different directions. How is it possible that she she didn't know that she didn't grab her taser because she had to consciously drop that piece of paper in an adrenaline and cortisol dump that caused her not to consciously think as clearly as she has in a classroom environment amongst her friends wearing sweats, probably not a uniform, which is a huge mistake. You should always train in your uniform and you should should train in situations that are going to put you under the most stress. What they most often do and what it sounded like in the testimony that I heard, they had quite a lot of PowerPoint presentation (laughs) <laughs> and you, you can't learn life and death situations We're watching a PowerPoint sitting in a chair in a classroom that's air conditioned in the middle of the day. Um, and so you have not put this, this trainee in a situation prior to being in the environment or prior, prior being put into the situation. You have not trained them situationally to think through and to, to, to know how to not go into that adrenaline cortisol dump into the body that causes you to forget things and to respond too quickly to where you've not made conscious decisions. You're now relying on your poor training. You're relying on bad training because you've not been put in the situation enough to be able to make conscious decisions in a stressful environment. And so it is not that unusual to not understand that this gun, which weighs a lot, listen, and listen to this. 
right? It's completely different. This is a hollow piece of plastic, which is very similar to a laser. And there is no way with an adrenaline dump and cortisol dump that these things weigh differently in the hand. That is a non-issue. And the jury should have been told through some experts saying, when you are put in a, under a, 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 a stressful situation where you have adrenaline pumping through your veins at a instantaneous moment at the, at the, at the feeling of fear, weight is a non-issue. How many times have you heard a mother, uh, there's you know, all these famous stories of, of a car rolled over on an infant or something like that, and the mother is able to lift the vehicle off their kid? or to uh, men have been able to go into a car crash situation and to do incredible things, tear a door off of a car uh, with their bare hands. It's because none of those things matter, right? The weight or the strength of something doesn't matter because you no longer have the, it doesn't matter. You can't feel weight. As a matter of fact, you can, you've heard officers um, who you get interviewed after a shooting, you say, how many rounds did you shoot? Um, two? No, you emptied your magazine and you reloaded the magazine. You shot three more rounds out of your second magazine. I reloaded? Yes. Um, did you hear the? I didn't hear one single round. I didn't hear the suspect's rounds. I didn't even hear my rounds. I, I heard nothing, right? There, you, can, you can go through all of these situations or high stress situations where an officer was, was, was forced to use some type of force and you ask them questions about it, they have no recollection of sound or how many or how many times or the weight or a difficulty, something might've been, none. None of that exists in an adrenaline cortisol dump when it comes to these types of situations. I'm sorry, I'm gonna do a couple comments here, maybe. Uh, no, that's a backache, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, paper in hand, uh, more concerned about legal issues than reality. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a good point, uh, Carol. Carol uh, and I worked at Anaheim Police Department together. Um, and so this, this adrenaline cortisol dump can be very important. I'm gonna read something from, uh, from some articles I read. So you, you don't think that I'm crazy, that I'm, I'm making crap up. Um, but I, I did have to go do a search to find something that uh, really understood uh, what this all means. So I, I don't know where I found this bit of information, but when you get anxious, your body makes two chemicals, adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline wreaks havoc on every part of your central nervous system. Let me read that again. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. Adrenaline wreaks havoc on, your, on every part of your central nervous system. Your central nervous system controls everything in your body. It can cause headaches, diarrhea, confusion, memory loss, memory loss, Difficulty concentrating, tearfulness, trouble sleeping, that's later, changes in eating patterns and many other problems. Cortisol, which happens at the exact same time, is an even nastier villain. Over long periods, it can lead to migraines, ulcers, strokes, heart disease, and cancer. When you go into a situation that you've never been put in for because your training was lacked, uh, was uh, lacked the, uh, the, um, the ability to put the trainee in a position of feeling stress, to stop the adrenaline cortisol uh, pump, to calmly go into a situation, to calmly think through what it is they're doing, to not be so stressed out, to not be so fearful, to hold back the, the moments of fear, to control their fear, to control their behavior, to control their thoughts. If you don't put an officer in these situations enough, they will not know how to do it on the real, on, in real life. The least amount of stressful situation will cause an adrenaline cortisol jump. To me, this would not have been, this would have been a no-brainer. I, I would have got the guy out and had him walk to the back of the vehicle. It would have been entirely held, um, uh, handled entirely differently. 
in some cases, you might let the guy get in the car and drive off. Because remember, this is only a registration violation. Because if you have to now wrestle with the guy and take him to the ground, if you now have to use a taser on this guy, if you now have to use your weapon on this guy, if you have to use a, uh, some type of striking weapon on this guy, you're going to have to explain why you used any of these things on a registration violation. This is where you've lost your ability to make conscious decisions. And I can tell that these officers were never put through training, good standard, proper stress training, because they made some horrible decisions. This was a registration violation. Sometimes you just have to let the guy go because you know that what's gonna end up happening is that you're gonna end up hurting the guy and you're gonna be in the hospital. The sergeant's gonna come and so, all right, so this guy where he's gonna have to be in surgery for a few hours to fix what you did to him, what was the stop again? <laughs> it was a registration. Okay, did he, did he punch you in the face? No. Did he, um, did he threaten to kill you? No. Oh, what happened? Well, I got him out of the car to handcuff him for a registration violation. Why did you do that? Well, uh, I just, because he was a little hinky. He was a little suspicious. Not good enough. Not good enough. I know. Sounds very strange. I may even have some police officers go, no, no, that's not, that's not. Yes. Yes. You let him go. You let him get in the car and he drives off. You have his license plate. Um, it looked like they might've had his driver's license. You go get him later. No, you don't shoot the guy for a registration violation. Again, does this sound like I'm saying that it's their fault? It is, there is some culpability. But if the car stopped, where it becomes the department's problem is that you did not prepare these officers to, to be able to handle a stressful situation. If the guy fights and, be, and tries to, to, to uh, not be handcuffed and he's resisting arrest, you have to be able to have officers that are trained not to go into the adrenaline cortisol dump where they can't make the decision, go, wait a minute, what are we doing? This is just a registration stop and not follow through with the, all these weapons, pulling out all these things, right? And, and go into the situation where you now, you have the, no, the point of no return and you have to make this decision where then you make a bad decision. You now have shot the guy because you thought you had the taser and you were going to use a taser when you, you didn't even have the, um, the, the right crime to be able to use a taser. The decision was faulty. It's because you've never put these officers in this position to do this. I'm going to show you one more thing before I sign off here. That's important to understand is that there's another reason why I think that she um, thought that she had the taser in her hand. And I want you to look here um, very closely and it's so hard because I, I have my lower third, number one. Let me get my lower third off of there. But you have, the, you have CNN's lower third. I don't, I just decided to use CNN because unfortunately it was the best one that I had. <laughs> All right. Uh, and so I have the volume turned off, but I want you to see, I want you to look and see in, on the left side of his body, the, the trainee, um, you see his taser, the, the yellow. Watch, watch. It's right in her eyesight where her handgun is and where uh, the suspect is. So watch, I want you to watch. I wish I could slow it down, but I can't. But you see right here, see his taser? See that yellow taser? Watch, it'll flash, it'll look where it is. And what I, my belief is, because you, look how far, far away he got so fast when he, when he heard her say taser. He jumped so far away. But understanding that when your adrenaline is flowing through your body, your vision can often narrow. And it narrows down this little tunnel. 
and you see nothing around you. That's another reason why in a shooting, you don't want to get in this adrenaline dump because you want to be able to see your surroundings. You want to see past the suspect. You want to see your backdrop. Who's in your back? Are there children in your backdrop? Is there a school in your backdrop? Uh, you know, uh, you know, of, of the, between you, your gun and the suspect, what's behind him. And so in an adrenaline dump, you're going to focus on certain things and your eyes are going to be attracted to certain things that um, are important. And my belief is, and this happens really quick. You can see that taser right in the line where her hand is, the suspect is, and that yellow taser on his belt, the trainee's belt is right there. I, I believe that her brain and her eyes saw the yellow, the brain processed it, and she thought that was confirmation that she had the taser in her hand. Regardless of whether she needs to reach or not, her, she went from paper drop to something in her hand. She saw the yellow in her vision in an adrenaline dump. It's, it's tunnel vision. It goes very narrow. Everything else around you is black. In that vision, you see yellow, which you recognize as a taser because you see it every day. You got to put your gun belt on. And I believe that was a confirmation to her brain that she had the um, taser in her hand. And again, you can look at me like I'm crazy, um, but I, I put I've, I put hand grenades. So I have something that looks like a hand grenade here. So this is a smoke grenade, but it's a hand grenade. Um, I've taken and put hand grenades in the middle of a room in a stressful situations where I've had uh, scenarios. So I put officers in training scenarios all the time and they don't like my training scenarios because it, I've made officers cry and I've made them very stressed and they go and they have diarrhea after some of my scenarios that I put them through. And I, in some of these scenarios, I've had a hand grenade on the table in between the actor who is the suspect and the start of the scenario where I put I, I can't think of one right now, but I've, I've given them information that we have an active shooter. He's already killed two people. When you come around the corner, you see the suspect. He has a gun. He said, I'm going to effing kill you. I'm going to effing kill you. And I've had many officers. I've, I've, in, a, in a night, I can train up to 50 officers on the same scenario and have maybe 10 out of the 50 see the hand grenade, which is sitting on the table right in front of them. Right? Because why? Because their vision narrows and the officers only see what they want to see. They see the gun, which sometimes he has his hand up, but he says, I'm going to fucking kill you. And he has a hand up or has a gun in his belt. And the officers focus in on that thing and they see nothing else. They don't see the hand grenade. They don't see anything behind them. They don't see that because I put them in a situation where the, the adrenaline has, has pumped into their bodily and the cortisol has begun pumping through their body that it causes this narrowing of their vision where they see nothing other than what it is that they perceive to be the danger and not the hand grenade, which is right in front of the suspect and they will totally miss it. And so when I'm telling you that this yellow taser on the belt of the officer, even though it's holstered, she sees yellow. She has something in her hand that she thinks is a taser and she's connecting the two because her mind has narrowed. It has caused her brain to narrow in on very few things so that she can seemingly solve the problem that's causing her her fear and she's connected the two when they don't go together again i saw nobody no expert come in and say listen she thought she had the taser there's there's no um there's no way that she even believed she had the gun i'm gonna go to one last video here really quick and i'm gonna remove this one and um stop that one but i'm gonna show you the video that uh, you may not have seen it's important i think for you to to see that tells me that there's no way
and they made a big deal about this too, but I'm going to go ahead and play this um, real quick. And uh, the volume should be on. Yeah. All right, here we go. Add the stream. I grabbed the wrong fucking gun. I shot him. Oh my God. Yeah, sit down. That goes on for a while. I'm sorry for the echo because I didn't uh, mute my mic. But that is another. There's no way that she she intended on sh on shooting him. There there was a clear thought in her mind that she had the taser. She again said taser, taser, taser. The guy backed off. All as in the training. Um, she shot shot him in a place where what's the center mass where she's hoping the darts would go. You would do that with a handgun also. Um, but her reaction afterwards is total disbelief that she had used um, the wrong tool to neutralize the situation that she totally believed that she had the taser in her hand. And so my argument um, as an expert in these cases that where I look at um, officers who make decisions, sometimes split second decisions, sometimes decisions that uh, go over a period of time where they can think them through. Um, I'm telling you that the, the culpability is lower than what I think the jury found. I, 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 I believe it, uh, although, you know, you would think that an adult say, you know what, I don't have enough training in any of these weapons I'm using. But again, as a police officer, I know that there were things that I was trained that I thought, well, maybe that's all you're supposed to get. Maybe that's all I need is a PowerPoint presentation and um, shoot a dummy, which they probably did. They probably shot a dummy uh, with a taser. They didn't really shoot somebody. And now they're thinking, well, that's happens. You know, you shoot, you shoot the, the, the dummy and then you say, okay, uh, you take your finger off the trigger um, and that's it. Oh, one last thing. She only shot once. She only shot once. So clearly she did not, was not trying to kill the guy because when an officer shoots and there's still movement, if, if, as he was driving away, she would have shot two or three more rounds if she knew she had her gun because she was, the guy was now a danger to officers around him. So a police officer uh, in a real situation where they think the suspect is dangerous that they want to shoot and kill or stop, and he's not stopping, she would have fired two or three more rounds. In a taser, you only pull the trigger once and you, and, and you hold on to it. And that, that causes the electrical current to stay going until you release. And so the fact she only shot once tells me that she truly believed in her mind that she had the taser. Sorry, I forgot all about that in the beginning. So did she think she had the taser? Yes. Um, and there was no, it wasn't not, not even an accident, necessarily an accident that she, um, uh, uh, you, know, you know, just pulled the wrong weapon. No, she thought that she had pulled out a taser. She thought she was holding the taser. She did everything she did other than having the right tool in her weapon, yelled taser, 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 um, doing everything else. She only pulled the trigger once and probably held it and didn't pull up another round. If she wanted to kill the man and her intention was to kill the man, she would have shot him once, shot him again. And as he's driving away, shot maybe two or three more times at the vehicles that drove away. Most 
police officers would have done that, not pulled the trigger once. All right. Um, but my, my, my final word is that the department, the training, the academy is at fault. The training was not adequate for these officers for these types of situations. They were not prepared mentally. They were not mentally strong. They weren't able to, to control their emotions, their control, their fear to make sound decisions. Um, why they decided to pull this guy out of the car and handcuff him for a, a, a registration violation, I don't know yet. I, I'm going to look into it further and find out if there's anything else. I don't think so. Um, but uh, I, I think the jury made the wrong decision. But I, as I have on other cases, the jury made the decision they made, and now she's going to have the, the deal with it. But uh, uh, I would appeal it and say, mm. Uh, you know, uh, sure, she made the, the, the error and sure a man died, unfortunately. Um, but um, it's because of her training, lack thereof of her training, not necessarily a decision that she made to pull the wrong weapon or that she actually wanted the guy dead. That is not true. All right, my friends, uh, take care. God bless. If you have any uh, comments as you're watching the replay, please feel free to comment. I would really appreciate that. And I'll see you at the next one. All right, take care. Bye. <laughs>